You're listening to a Truly Criminal podcast exclusive. This episode contains themes that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. invites you to Playboy's Rubber Disco and Pajama Party and guest stars The Village People Chuck Mangione and the Chuck Mangione Quartet Waitland and Madam and special surprise celebrities plus a preview of Playboy's Playmates of the 80s In February of 1977, the centrefold for one of the world's leading erotic magazines was a young and beautiful blonde named Star Stowe. Her innocent image juxtaposed with her lustful aura automatically captured the hearts and minds of Playboy readers across the United States, as well as the founder of Playboy magazine Hugh Hefner and Kiss frontman Gene Simmons. However, just 20 years later, this glamour model's life would be brutally brought to an end by a suspected serial killer who, to this day, has never been caught. Star Stowe was born Ellen Louise Stowe on the 19th of March 1956 in the sleepy and conservative town of Little Rock, Arkansas. Known today as being a more liberal city boasting museums, art galleries and a thriving food scene, the city Star was raised in was a very different place. In the late 50s and early 1960s, Little Rock was rife with racism and sexual inequality, as well as being infamous for its links to the still-unsolved phantom slayings of the 1940s and the Little Rock crisis of 1957. Perhaps it was due to growing up witnessing all of this dark turmoil around her that Star grew up into a strong-willed and rebellious child who dreamt of breaking the mould of her environment and making it big someday. By her teenage years, Star was desperately yearning for a life outside of Little Rock and the confines of the small home that she shared with her engineer father and her homemaker mother. She wanted to explore, experience and live life to the absolute fullest. Always a popular and outgoing girl who constantly received compliments about her sparkling warm brown eyes and golden hair, the petite five foot six girl had big aspirations of being a model, a dancer or even the lead singer in a rock and roll band. She loved all things related to music, especially rock music, saying later, music is like a religion to me. I have a wild side and an innocent side. The two combined make for an unusual experience. Star lived for dancing, singing and anything even remotely creative, and by the age of 18 she had moved to Las Vegas by herself to chase down her dreams on the streets of Sin City. However, the reality of starting anew was more difficult than she'd imagined. And, struggling to find work, she eventually took a job working as a topless dancer in a club on the Vegas Strip. Although it wasn't what she expected or had in mind when she had first left Little Rock, she was also hoping that the job would boost her modelling career and that she'd be able to catch the eye of a talent scout or someone else in the industry who could help her achieve her dreams. It wasn't long before she grew tired of Vegas, however, and felt the pull of the city that attracted all those with stars in their eyes. The City of Angels. Los Angeles, California, where she eventually found more work as an exotic dancer. It was whilst living in Los Angeles that Star, who was working under Ellen, her birth name at the time, decided to change her name. 
she and her friends pondered all kinds of possible aliases until the bouncer of a nightclub inadvertently gave her the moniker that would stick with her until her death. He refused admission to her by quoting the popular 1973 Rolling Stones song, Star Star, telling the then minor, Star Star can't get in the door. With lyrics that seemed to mirror her life, like, I know you're moving out to Hollywood, the name stuck, as it coincided perfectly with her love for astronomy and the cosmos. It wasn't long before she went under the needle of a local tattooist, getting a blue star tattoo just underneath her bikini line. As the dancer walked out of the tattoo shop onto the sun-bleached streets of Los Angeles, a star had quite literally been born. Stars, though, finally got the big break she was hoping for in 1975, when, one night whilst dancing, she was spotted by a talent scout who worked for one of the most prestigious and popular adult magazines at the time, Playboy. Well, here's a piece of Hollywood history that just went up for sale this week, the Playboy Mansion. So many stars have partied in Hep's house over more than four decades, and Oh, the walls could talk. 12 bedrooms, 21 bathrooms, multiple dining rooms, 20,000 square feet. Yours for that asking price, says agent Mauricio Umansky. It's one of the most expensive properties to be sold in L.A. What you get is you get privacy, you get five acres, you get history. Speaking of history, some of Hollywood's most legendary parties have been held at Hef's house. We were there for Hef's 60th and 80th birthday. Playboy magazine was founded in December of 1953 by former sociology student, entrepreneur and well-known womanizer Hugh Hefner. The real essence of Playboy was trying to put not just sex, but the whole notion of play and pleasure back into the American concept of living. And uh, that proved to be a little more revolutionary than I realized when I started. I think that... Uh, that legally and uh, and culturally that uh, our our society and mes- and much of uh, the western world and apparently at least to the same degree the eastern part of the world as well is still suffering from from really deep seated sexual repression and we are still a long ways from throwing off the chains of uh, of uh, sexual superstition and, and bondage. As we once said in, a, in an early editorial, that life is something more than a veil of tears and, and should be. That you get full satisfaction out of uh, this life. A person ought to both work hard and play hard. Our notion was that a total man ought to, to have a part of his life that could be properly described as uh, a playboy attitude. It was a notion, again, of putting the play and pleasure back into a lifestyle that uh, prior to that had had a much more Puritan, work-oriented, anti-sexual, anti-sensual attitude. Starting life as a magazine that published literature, lifestyle articles, interviews and risque glamour shots of female models that included Marilyn Monroe, it quickly became one of America's leading adult magazines and a social icon with an average monthly readership of over 6 million people. The magazine also quickly became career goals for thousands of glamour models all over the globe. Additionally, the Playboy franchise became known for pushing boundaries for diversity and inclusion, well before other mainstream outlets, by championing abortion rights, funding the first ever rape kit and supporting transgender rights by publishing the first ever glamour shots of a transgender model, Caroline Cossey, in 1981. Here is a clip of Hugh Hefner being interviewed by late-night icon David Letterman. Let's talk about the, the magazine you borrowed. How much from your folks to start the magazine? I borrowed uh, $600 of my own money, mm-hmm. and um, 
about 6,000 from various friends and, yeah. and relatives. And some from my brother. folks, yeah. yeah. Now, did about, they know the kind of magazine you were going to publish? Vaguely. Yeah. And then, <laughs> quite, well, quite literally. My, my folks are uh, uh, strong Protestants, uh -huh. and uh, they had mixed emotions when I began. Tell me about the first, uh, the first woman to appear uh, nude in here. Well, the very first Playmate, but in, in the very beginning, the first uh, for the first year, the uh, Playmates were calendar pictures. Mm -hmm. The very first one was Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Although in recent years, a number of allegations from former models, Playboy Bunnies and Mansion staff have shown that the magazine, whilst under the reign of Hefner, was a hotbed of emotional and sexual abuse, as chronicled by the groundbreaking 2022 miniseries, Secrets of Playboy, aired on the UK's Channel 4. However, back in 1977, for Star, the chance to become one of the Playboy bunnies was a dream come true, and a chance to really make it big in an industry she'd always had aspirations to succeed in. You, you mentioned your home, and certainly one of the, the things in Southern California that people are always talking about, you see it on television all the time, you see it, uh, you hear about it, and read about it in newspapers and so forth, you see it in the magazine, is your home. Sure. Tell me about the mansion. Now, now who lives there? Is it... Is it a lot of folks? Is it you? Is, do you actually live there? It's, I live there. You have, you have a lot of parties there, don't you? Yes. Now, who gets invited to the parties? Friends. Mm -hmm. Now, Friends, do you ever have any trouble uh, somebody getting rowdy? Well, occasionally, but not often. And, and what do you do with them? <laughs> well, we calm them down, and if they get too rowdy, mm -hmm. well, we escort them out. Yeah. And, and are they ever invited back? It depends on how rowdy they are. Yeah. One of the things that happens, one of the very nice things that happens at, uh, at the mansion is that everybody kind of um, mellows out. It's a, it really is. It, it has developed a reputation as being kind of a Shangri-La, a sort of escape from the jungle that's out there. Yeah. And uh, people are, by and large, on their best behavior when they're yeah. at uh, the mansion. Now, I'm, ju I'm just being silly, but, you know, I think a lot of women might be offended that a guy, in a, a wealthy man who, is, who has shaped the, uh, the uh, morals and the mores of this society, uh, would not find himself going out with a woman closer to his own age. I would like to suggest that there are lots of limitations that our society places on, on romantic relationships that don't make a lot of sense. And age is one of them. Yeah. Whether it's an older man with a younger woman or vice versa. Yeah. I don't think that age makes a lot of difference. Within just a couple of months, the small town Southern Belle had quit her dancing jobs and was rubbing elbows with the rich and famous at the glamorous Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles. It was around the same time that in 1975, 18-year-old star met a man that would change her life forever. The bass player of the rock band Kiss, Gene Simmons. The pair happened to meet in the elevators of the Hotel Sahara in Las Vegas, one night after a KISS concert. Starr instantly recognised Simmons and struck up a conversation with him. The pair were reportedly immediately smitten with one another. It would be the start of a rollercoaster three-year passionate love affair in which Starr would become somewhat of a band muse and mascot attending KISS gigs, taking part in numerous promotional photo shoots and even appearing on one of the rock band's albums. Friends said that the couple was simply crazy about each other and especially shared a deep, intimate bond over rock and roll music. With Gene Simmons' influence and support behind her, Starr flew out to Chicago's Playboy Club and modelled for an erotic photo shoot with famous Playboy photographer Pompeo Passar. He liked Starr's confidence and fun attitude during the shoot, so suggested that she pose with a dark blue Rickenbacker bass guitar that was in the corner of the studio at the time, as he thought it meshed well with her sultry and sexy rock image. After the shoot, Starr's now boyfriend, Gene Simmons, made sure the photographers made their way directly into the hands of Hugh Hefner himself. 
And uh, you still select the uh, the play? Uh, yes. Yeah. Now, how, how do you do that? What's the process there? Well, the first stage is to go through the photo department. They do test photographs. I'll do a little of that right now, Hugh, while you're... Uh... <laughs> we have people like you out there all over the country looking for beautiful women. Do you, you take uh, unsolicited photographs? Oh, yes. Sure. sure. So anybody who's shooting uh, pictures can send them to yes. your company? Yes. And, and then you look through them? Well, the photo department looks through them initially, then test photos are shot. Then in a photo meeting, I go through the best of what the mm -hmm. photo department is like. Do, do you meet the women? In some instances, not all instances. Hefner loved Starr's style and the fact she was backed by a world-famous rock band, so much so he immediately made her Playmate of the Month in February of 1977 under the title Starstruck. Playmate of the Month was a massive accolade for the young star. It was something that models everywhere had dreamed of, coveting the prestigious centrefold position in the popular magazine. Always a mould-breaker, Starr was also the first ever Playboy model to appear in the magazine sporting a tattoo, her namesake's blue star icon. She said in that Playboy article, Some people think it's egotistical to call myself Star, but it's not meant in the Hollywood sense at all. The article went on to say, It's meant, and we kid you not, in a celestial sense. Star happens to be fascinated by stars, you know, those twinkly little objects that come out at night. In her spare time, she hangs out at the Planetoria and studies pictures of nebulae and comets. She also discussed briefly within the article some of her future ambitions, saying, I would love to do more modelling, or maybe become a bunny at the Playboy Club in Chicago. I'd love to be the most radical bisexual rock star there could ever be. Star Stowe's appearance in the magazine and her love affair with Gene Simmons catapulted her to fame and fortune beyond anything she could have ever imagined. And by the end of that whirlwind year, she had been voted Japan's Playboy Centerfold of the Year. It was as though all of Star's dreams had finally started to come true. However, those dreams were quickly becoming nightmares. Wherever we work, wherever we go, yes means yes and no means no. Work your way up to the front of the march and there she is, a woman who says it's like she's been marching for years. Yes means yes and no means no. Tarana Burke is wearing the original Me Too t-shirt from before the slogan became a hashtag. Since the Me Too movement, the sexual abuse and harassment of dancers and models, actors and actresses has been brought to the forefront of conversations in a way that it hadn't been before. However, in the 1970s, and especially the realms of the Playboy Mansion, such abuses were very common. The young and impressionable star, who was naive to the seedier aspects of life in the Playboy Mansion, was taken advantage of and used and abused by a string of high-profile men, including Hugh Hefner himself, who allegedly pressurised her into taking drugs such as quaaludes and sleep with him twice a week, as well as many of his business associates. Like so many other women in Hollywood at the time, Starr was told that her modelling work depended on these sexual favours, and if she wanted to advance her career, she had no choice. This abuse of power by the very people she had looked up to and trusted ultimately took a heavy toll on her mentally, and soon Starr became severely depressed. It wasn't long before she fell into using illegal narcotics and drinking alcohol regularly as a means of self-medicating and numbing the pain that she was experiencing. This dependence on drugs as a means of escape would lead to a lifelong battle against substance abuse that Starr would struggle with until her death at the age of just 40. Exacerbating Starr's mental decline were the strict rules that Hefner enforced over the women under his control within the walls of the Playboy Mansion. 
Star wasn't allowed to work anywhere else. She couldn't meet friends and family, and she was forced to attend parties where rampant drug-taking and sex were the expected norms. As her addiction to heavy narcotics and alcohol deepened, so did Star's depression, which became more and more evident in her erratic behaviour as time went on. Friends said she would suddenly break down weeping for no apparent reason or become hysterical. It was due to this change in her behaviour that primarily caused her relationship with Gene Simmons to suffer. Gene Simmons, who didn't use narcotics himself, disapproved of her new lifestyle and mood swings, and the couple would often fight over issues related to her work at the Playboy Mansion West and the people she was spending time with. Adding to the friction in the relationship was the fact that Simmons would attend parties at the Playboy Mansion where he would openly cheat on Star. In 1978, after the relationship had turned irredeemably toxic, the pair finally split, and Star, who was still head over heels in love with him, was absolutely devastated, friends would say. It was after the collapse of her romantic relationship with Gene Simmons that her relationship with Hugh Hefner and the Playboy organisation also began to sour. Now, at still the very young age of 22, and completely in the grips of a drug and alcohol addiction, as well as having grown angry about the way she had been used and abused, Star's volatile behaviour within the Playboy Mansion began to escalate. She woke up after a while and realised she wasn't getting out of it what she wanted, but Playboy was definitely getting what they wanted out of her. It's too late to change once you get wrapped up, and Playboy, especially if they've gotten you addicted to drugs and alcohol, became a real nightmare, recalled Jeff Olson, a lifelong friend of the model. Just a few years after her groundbreaking centrefold had hit newsstands, the relationship between Star Stowe and her employer Hugh Hefner had reached a boiling point. The 22-year-old was thrown out of the Playboy mansion, and according to Jeff, the magazine attached a stigma to the glamour model's name, making it impossible for her to find new modelling or dancing opportunities in California. Reality star and once-famous Playboy bunny and former girlfriend of Hugh Hefner, Holly Madison, gave an interview for a documentary about Star called The Playboy Murders. There was a real disconnect in the Playboy world because they expect Star to be this party girl, but then the second she develops a problem with it, she's the problem. The moment that Star was kicked out, it must have just felt like she lost everything. Even if bad things were happening to Star at the mansion, that was all she knew at that time. Those were the only people she knew in L.A. That was her income. That was her job. It was everything. She didn't have any outside resources. She was 22 years old. She's now addicted to drugs and alcohol, and it just must have felt like she was adrift. Struggling to find work and support herself after being blacklisted by Playboy, Star decided to leave Los Angeles and move back to Las Vegas, Nevada, in the hopes of finding substantial employment using the international fame she had garnered, and also, hopefully, have a fresh start. In 1981, Star, still reeling from everything, met aspiring rock and roll musician Peter Milago, and the pair quickly married. A son, Michael, the apple of his mother's eye, was born soon after. According to numerous sources close to Star, within days of giving birth to her son, her new husband Peter coerced her into going back to work as an exotic dancer as they needed to pay the bills and didn't have any money. For a while, her Playboy credentials helped her find well-paying jobs, dancing in some of the more upmarket strip clubs on the Vegas Strip, but it wasn't long before the jobs began to dry up. Still struggling with the traumas of her past, her low self-esteem and her battle for sobriety, Star was trying her best to keep her new family afloat. As she got older, her work prospects began to fade in Las Vegas too, and the already tumultuous relationship with her husband began to disintegrate. 
soon ending in a bitter divorce. By 1986, Starr had taken her infant son to start afresh in the beautiful and scenic coastal city of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where she began working as an exotic dancer at nightclubs. She was still struggling to make ends meet and battling an all-consuming addiction. As her drug and alcohol addictions were increasing to a level that took over her entire life, Starr's dancing opportunities began to decrease as clubs were hiring much younger and healthier women. Desperate to make ends meet, she resorted to sex work on the back streets of Fort Lauderdale to survive. She also sent Michael to live with her mother back in her hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, feeling she could no longer look after him and provide him with the upbringing he needed. Her good friend Jeff recalled seeing her at that time. She needed to drink and do drugs, so she didn't have to think about it and didn't have to feel, he recalled. After hitting rock bottom in 1990 following an arrest for narcotics possession, Starr resolved to finally get free from drugs and alcohol and promised to rebuild her life for her son. Despite a one-off relapse in 1991, she managed to remain sober for the next five years, a huge milestone. She started a new relationship with a good man and the pair lived together and helped support each other through the difficult process of rehabilitation. She stayed home most days preferring to clean the couple's home, prepare meals, like her speciality beef stir-fry, and look after their pets. Michael would visit or telephone his mother frequently around this time and later told reporters, it's like talking to your best friend. I thought she was so cool. I really enjoyed being around her. Tragically, this wasn't to last. In August of 1996, Starr and her boyfriend had got into a drunken argument at their apartment. During the verbal confrontation, Starr tripped and fell, cutting her head on the floor. Concerned neighbours called the police department and her boyfriend was arrested for domestic abuse, although he was later released without charge, as it was determined he hadn't actually touched her and she had fallen over as a result of alcohol. It was too late for them to reconcile. She left the couple's home and returned to drugs and sex work. The boyfriend, who has remained anonymous to this day, told reporters after her death she had a problem, she couldn't cope with her life, but there was more to this woman than meets the eye. A few months would pass, which brings us to the afternoon of the 16th of March 1997, a mere three days before her 41st birthday, and 20 years since she had stolen the hearts of Playboy readers across the United States. A group of boys discovered Starr's semi-naked body lying face down in a trash-strewn lot behind a Coral Springs Eckerd pharmaceutical store. Star Stowe was dead. An autopsy confirmed that she had been strangled to death. Due to her namesake tattoo and recognisable face, it wouldn't take long for authorities to identify her body. One of the first people on the scene, now retired Coral Springs detective Dennis Pickering, told media outlets years later, It was the 16th of March. I received a phone call to respond to a scene. I think it was about 3.30 in the afternoon. We had an unidentified white female late 20s or maybe early 30s and she was partially nude from the waist up laying over in the wood one of her arms i think was underneath her upon examination of the body they found that she had been strangled i noticed she had a star tattooed on her body and i kind of kiddingly said to the detective you know I said, back in the 70s there was a girl who was dating gene simmons who had a tattoo in the very same spot she was a centerfold for Playboy. And I says, 
What are the odds of that? With tears in his eyes, he added, I called her mother on March the 17th. She was uncontrollably crying. Detectives were baffled, as leads were few and far between. Starr had last been seen climbing into a nondescript vehicle, believed to belong to one of her clients, between 3 and 5pm, the day prior to her murder. There were no defensive wounds to Starr's body and no foreign DNA underneath her fingernails, which led investigators to believe she had known her killer and hadn't seen it coming, so hadn't fought back. Authorities handed out flyers, knocked on doors in the neighbourhood and canvassed bars, hotels and nearby streets. However, all attempts to locate the vehicle or Starr's client led nowhere. Detectives later tracked down a strong person of interest in the case, a small-time drug dealer who had also been acting as Starr's pimp. He happened to be the last person to see her alive when he dropped her off in a Coral Springs parking lot to meet a client. The still-unnamed suspect denied all accusations of Starr's murder, but raised further suspicions when detectives executed a search warrant on his van, which had been completely gutted. As Detective Dennis Pickering called, you could tell there was nothing in it. The carpet had been ripped out, everything was out of it, it was completely gutted. It just had the seat to drive and the passenger seat. If there was any evidence in it, it was gone. The case took another dramatic turn when Star Stowe's case was matched to the eerily similar murder of another sex worker in Fort Lauderdale a few weeks before Star's killing. Sandra K. Walters had been found strangled to death on the 27th of February 1997 and her body had been dumped in an almost identical fashion to that of Star. With a very similar modus operandi, detectives theorised that the two similar-looking women may have been killed by the same person who was apparently targeting blonde sex workers in the Fort Lauderdale area of Florida. This theory was later reinforced when the body of another sex worker of similar appearance to Star, Tammy Strunk, was discovered strangled and dumped in November the same year. Detectives began to believe they were dealing with a serial killer who was targeting vulnerable sex workers who were drug and alcohol dependent and who resembled Starr's characteristics. It was theorised they were using the back streets of Fort Lauderdale as a hunting ground. After forensics and an autopsy, Starr was cremated and her ashes given to her mother. Not a single person from her Playboy days attended her funeral. As the months turned into years and each new lead led nowhere... Starr's case, as well as the case of Sandra K. Walters and Tammy Strunk, began to grow cold. Detectives felt as though they were at loose ends, and then, in 1999, the murders started up once more. The modus operandi again matched the three unsolved cases of 1997, but as detectives frantically chased down leads, the killer once more faded away into dormancy, and the path again went cold. As of the writing of this podcast, the murder of Star Stowe, as well as that of Sandra K. Walters and Tammy Strunk, and the other women, remain unsolved. The Coral Springs Police Department have apparently reopened Star's file, with hopes of finally closing her case, with the aid of recent developments in DNA testing and genealogical databases. Hopefully her son, Michael, who last spoke to his mother on the telephone, just two weeks before her murder, about the newest Nine Inch Nails album, and loved her so deeply, will finally have closure and justice. We at Truly Criminal hope so too. Thank you very much for listening to this Truly Criminal podcast exclusive, and if you have any information relating to the murder of Star Stowe, or any of the other victims, please contact the Coral Springs Police Department at 954-344-1800. 
This tragic case isn't the only horrific murder of a Playboy model. Stay tuned to the Truly Criminal podcast for an upcoming episode on the brutal slaying of Playboy Bunny, Dorothy Stratton, 